And if you haven't turned to Obadiah, then do so. And if you've got a small church Bible, it's page 925. If you've got a large print, it's page 1438. If you've got another Bible and you can't find it, there's a contents page at the beginning which you can use. And if you really know your Bible well, it's the book after Amos. So hopefully with all those helps, uh, you can find the smallest book in the Old Testament, the book of Obadiah. Now I don't know if any of you have made any New Year's resolutions this year. Uh, Maybe some of you are going to get fit after all that Christmas excess. Perhaps you're going to this year learn something new. Or perhaps return to something that you used to do and that you've stopped doing. Well, how about this year resolving to share the gospel more, with more urgency, with those that are lost? You know, every day we are closer and closer to the time when Christ will return. And if you like, in a quite depressing way, every day we are closer and closer to the grave. But what this tells us is that the message is always urgent. The gospel message is always urgent. And as we begin this year, we are in a book that presents us with two stark choices. We can either be delivered from sin and be with God in heaven forever, or, like the Edomites, we can proudly reject God and be in a lost eternity in hell. And I pray that as we look at this book in the Bible, the book of Obadiah, our hearts will be stirred either to respond to the message of Christ, or if you have done so, to urgently share the message of Christ. As a bit of background uh, to this book, Uh, We read Genesis chapter 25, which was where Jacob and Esau were born. And I said that two nations came from these two children. The nation of Israel from Jacob, the, uh, the the, the people where God's promise came through, who were God's people, and the nation of Edom who came from Esau. And the brothers didn't get on, did they? We know that Jacob was a trickster. And Esau was, well, pretty much a brute, pretty stupid. Uh, He sold his birthright, if you remember, for a bowl of stew. And he lost his father's blessing because his brother Jacob had stolen it from him. And it's something that you couldn't get back. And all through the Old Testament, we see these two nations fighting against one another. And this book was written probably during the time when Israel were exiled from the Promised Land in Babylon. And Esau had helped the Babylonians take Israel into captive. And it ended up that Edom hated Israel so much that they would even help destroy them. And God had had enough. And this message is twofold, really. There is a day of destruction for the proud, and there is a day of deliverance for God's people. And as we begin 2014... We see that this message really is the same as it was last year and the year before and all the years before. And it's the same message that will always be until Christ returns. That there are two ways to live. There is the way of God where we submit to Jesus or is the way of destruction where we proudly reject God. 
And as we hear this message, I, it's my prayer that, that we are more urgent in the way we share the gospel with those that are rejecting God. So first of all, hopefully by now you would have turned to the book of Obadiah. It begins with uh, verse 1, the vision of Obadiah. This is what the sovereign Lord says about Edom. We have heard a message from the Lord. An envoy was sent to the nations to say, rise and let us go against her for battle. There is a message from God. It is against Edom. It is from Obadiah. It's his vision. And this is what God is going to say. And the first uh, thing we really see is that there is a day of destruction for those who proudly reject God. And he begins this prophecy by describing what is going to happen to the Edomites. And it's interesting to how he describes all the things that Edom are proud of. First of all, we see that they are proud of their place. Proud of their place. Look at verses 3 and 4. It says, The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rocks. And make your home on the heights. You who say to yourself, who can bring me down to the ground? Though you soar like the eagle and make your nest among the stars. From there, I will bring you down, says the Lord. These verses refer to the capital city of Edom. uh, The chief city, Selah. And it was in a fortress known as Petra. And this was in the mountains in the region of Seir. And it was accessible only through a one-mile passage that was very narrow and no more than 12 feet wide in any one place. And if an army got past the canyon, all of the homes were built into the rocks. And it would allow the armies to just jump down onto this narrow road with the advantage of height and destroy the enemies that came amongst them. It was one of the most secure places in the world. And they lived in these mountains, in the clefts of the rocks. And it was very hard to attack them. And soaring like eagles refers to some of them being in extremely high places. Nesting among the stars. They were high up and they thought that they were secure. But what does God say? From there, from these high places, from the stars and from where you are like the eagles, from there I will bring you down. You see, nowhere is too secure for God to bring us down from. And the only secure rock is God. There's a hymn, isn't there? Rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. God is the only secure place. He is the only rock we can uh, be be in and be secure. Anywhere else, any other place, God can just bring us down. They were proud of their place. They were proud of their possessions. Look at verses 5 and 6. If thieves come to you, if robbers in the night, oh, what a disaster awaits you. Would they not steal only as much as they wanted? If a grape picker came to you, would they not leave a few grapes? But how Esau will be ransacked, his hidden treasures pillaged. Well, this, uh, this road on the way to Edom... There was a road called the King's Highway, and it was a major trade route. And whoever controlled this highway controlled the flow of goods. And Edom, with the highway through there, became very rich. Goods flowed through Edom, and they were a wealthy nation. They were proud of their possession of wealth. But 
says that when, when thieves they only take what they and they leave what they Now, if they came to my house, they probably wouldn't take very much. And in fact, if they came on a lot of days after the children, they'd think it had already been robbed. But if thieves come to the house, they take what they want and they leave what they don't want. And when grapes come, on the highway, grapes, some don't they, but uh, doesn't leave anything. Yeah, when grape gatherers come, they only take the grapes that they want. They leave behind the ones that are no good. And God is saying that I'm going to destroy everything. He, Esau will be ransacked, his hidden treasures pillaged. God will destroy everything. There's no possession that God will not get rid of. They were proud of their possessions. They were proud of their position, of their position in society. You look at verses 2 and verse 7. It says, See, I will make you small among the nations. See, they thought they were a big, uh, wonderful nation, one of the, the best in the world, but God says, I will make you small. You will be utterly despised. And verse 7 says, All your allies will force you to the border. Your friends will deceive you and overpower you. Those who eat your bread will set a trap for you, but you will not detect it. You see, Edom had many allies, and they would if they controlled the king's highway. Especially allies with those, by the way, that were against Israel. And Edom was proud of its position in the ancient world, but God says, I will make you small among the nations. And what's more, verse 7 tells us that these allies would be the cause of Edom's demise. Those allies would force them out of their borders by deceit and overpower them. And those that ate bread with them would be the ones to set the trap. And we know from history that this actually happened. Um, there's lots of dates you could read about, but during the, probably the Babylonian period, the Edomites welcomed a group into their country called the Nabatians. And they had a banquet and once welcomed inside the Edomite territory, these Nabatians turned against their ally and killed the guards. And they forced the Edomites from their high place in the mountains into southern Palestine. And by the time Christ came, these Nabatians were the ones that controlled the, the mountains of Seir where the Edomites lived. You see, that literally happened. They invited these people in, the people they thought were they, they were friends with, and they turned against them. And they came down from their high place, like God had said, and ended up in the southern Palestine. God removed them from their position and made them small. And final thing they were proud of, they were proud in their philosophers. Proud in their philosophers. Look at verses 8 and 9. In that day, declares the Lord, will I not destroy the wise men of Edom, those of understanding in the mountains of Esau, your warriors, T-man, will be terrified and everyone in Esau's mountain will be cut down in the slaughter. You see, Edom had pride in their men and women of wisdom. If you read the book of Job, uh, you'll see that T-man is a town in Edom and Eliphaz was a Temanite. He was one of the advisors of Job. See, the Edomites were thought they were men of wisdom. They thought they were clever and knowledgeable and all those things. And they might well have been. Although uh, Eliphaz the Temanite didn't have any good advice for Job. 
But how ironic that these wise men wouldn't figure out that they were being deceived by these nabations in history. And God says he would destroy the wise men of Edom and the understanding out of Esau. And the warriors, probably who were numerous and large, because Esau, as we read, was a big, hairy uh, redhead who was very strong. Uh, They were probably lots of those strong warriors. They would be dismayed at the slaughter to come. You see, all the wisdom in the world is not wise enough to reject God and be successful. And we can be proud of lots of things, can't we? You know, at one time um, for Christmas, uh, Paula bought me, uh, when digital radios first came out, she bought me a really brand new DAB digital radio, and I loved it, because I love listening to the radio. You know, maybe that's sad, but I do. And um, I loved this digital radio. But it was when Lydia was a real uh, little girl, and one time I was having a nap in the afternoon, as you do when you've got young children, if you can, because Lydia was having a nap. But she woke up before me, and I didn't wake up, and she came into my room, and she said, Daddy, I've got a magic wand. And there she was, waving my aerial around (laughs) from my brand new digital radio, which then no longer really worked. You see, we can be proud of lots of things, but they can just easily be destroyed, can't they? And what are people today, Christian and non-Christian alike, proud of? Isn't it not the same things? We're proud of our place or our homes, our possessions, our position or status, our philosophers or our, our, our wisdom. And pride, the Bible says, leads to destruction. And our Christian lives are not going to be full as they ought to be if we're proud of any of these things above God. And pride can ruin our lives and take over us so God is put on the outside And like Edom, we may have to lose some of these things in judgment if we do not give them to God now. But really, they are God's already. Psalm 24 verse 1 tells us, The earth is the Lord's and all the fullness thereof. You see, God, everything, everything is God's. But pride ultimately can lead us to hell if we do not give our lives to Christ. You must humbly come before him Confess that you are a sinner and need him to save you. You must believe that Jesus has died and is risen from the dead and you will be saved from the destruction that is talked about here. But if you are too proud, James chapter 4 verse 6 tells us God gives more grace. That is why the scripture says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the to the humble. And all those things that the people of Eden were proud of, God said he would destroy. And we see that there is, uh, the the reason, sorry, that Edom was destroyed was because of the way that this pride led them to treat their brother Israel. And from uh, verses um, uh, 10 down uh, to verse 14, we see how this panned itself out. You see, because they were proud of all these things and they hated their brother, they treated the Israelites badly throughout history. But their treatment culminated in verses 10 to 14. And this is where God, why God judged them because of what they did here. And we can see how pride led them into a spiral of treating Israel worse and worse, and how if we're proud, it can do the same for us as well. And as we look at the next few verses, we see how this gradually gets worse and worse and worse 
In verse 10 it says, the violence against, because of the violence against your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame and you will be destroyed forever. Because of the violence towards Israel, they would be destroyed. And this violence gets worse and worse. Look at verse 11. It says, On the day that you stood aloof, while strangers carried off his wealth, and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. So when the enemy comes into Jerusalem, so when Babylon, if you like, which is the likely uh, thing this is talking about, but it's not certain, but it's likely, when they came in, it says, at first, you stood aloof, while strangers carried off his wealth. So they were probably up on their high mountains, looking down at Jerusalem, looking at these enemies coming in to destroy their brother. But it says, you were like one of them. They stood and watched as foreigners invaded Judah. Now we know that King Jehoram had his sons and their wives carried away captive. Many others were taken away into Babylon. Many were killed. But they were watching, and it says that you were like one of them. You see, watching something happen, watching uh, somebody that you despise, perhaps, watching them fall, watching them get into trouble, it says you're, it's like you're involved. If you're just watching and not doing anything to help, it's like you are involved. You were like one of them. But they go from this passive involvement to verse 12, the first part, they start rejoicing. You should not gloat over your brother in the day of his misfortune, nor rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction. So they go from a passive involvement to rejoicing. They start looking at them and saying, ah, look at, yes, look at what's happening, this is brilliant. They they went from watching to rejoicing. And then, in verse, the next part of verse 12, they started boasting, speaking proudly, nor boast so much in the day of their trouble. So they were watching, then they rejoiced, then they started boasting. It could have been pride in the fact that they have not been destroyed themselves, or the fact that they have taken part in this destruction, I don't know. But either way, they were rejoicing and then they were boasting. But then they start to get more involved. Look at verse 13. You should not march through the gates of my people in the day of the disaster. It's like they came, they were watching from afar... They were rejoicing and boasting, and then they decided to say, well, let's go, let's go have a closer look. Let's, look, let's, get, let's just have a, have a better look. Let's gaze upon them. And that's what the next part of verse 13 says. Nor gloat over them in their calamity in the day of their disaster. The New King James uses the phrase, gazed upon their affliction. And that's what it really means. They, they enter the gate, and then they gaze. They get, have a closer look. They gaze at their affliction. And then in verses 13 at the end and verse 14, they are actively involved. You see, the spiral gets worse. They've gone from watching from afar, and now they are actively involved. It says, nor seize their wealth. So now they're stealing. You should not wait at the crossroads to cut down their fugitives. So when people were trying to escape, the Edomites were blocking the way. They were standing there saying, no, you can't escape. You You must not leave. They were helping the Babylonians to destroy And then it says, nor hand over their survivors in the day of trouble. So not only were they blocking the way, they were taking the survivors and they were handing them over to the Babylonians. And you can see how this this spiraled worse and worse. They went from their lofty position where they watched to being actively involved and handing people over to destruction. This was their brother. 
This was their family. And they were so proud that it led them to treat them in this awful way. And we go through a similar kind of process if we do not deal with our pride. Perhaps we look for people that we don't get on with to slip up and we watch it happen without trying to stop it. Then we rejoice when things don't go their way. We think, oh yes, I'm glad that they've got their comeuppance. We speak proudly, well that that would never happen to me. That would never happen to me. And then perhaps we start entering the gate of their life and begin to want to speak to them, to get a closer look. You know, we pretend that we care about them, but really we're just trying to get the gossip to find out what's happening to them. And finally, perhaps you start being actively involved in their affliction. You, you block ways of them escaping from their affliction. You cause affliction. You persecute. And you might think, oh, that's, that's severe. That could never happen if you don't deal with pride in your heart. If you don't reconcile yourself to people that you don't get on with. This is exactly what can happen, even to a Christian, even within a church. And we have to be careful as Christians too, because unbelievers go through this process all the time when trying to make Christians fall and ruin their testimony. Christians are, are big targets. You know, when I was um, in, in offices and when I was working and people knew I was a Christian, they would look for me to fall down. They would point out things. Well, surely if you're a Christian, you wouldn't want to do that. And sometimes there were silly things, but they were looking for me to fall, and they do. You see, pride can lead to people destroying lives. And we must keep these kind of things in check. So perhaps think of someone that you've had a disagreement with and pray for them so your attitude improves towards them and pray your way out of this negative spiral that the Edomites had. But now the book moves in a different direction from the past to what Edom has done to the future of what happens to Edom. And these are the results of rejecting God and rejecting and persecuting his people. It says in verse uh, 15 that the day of the Lord is near for all nations. And when we talk about the day of the Lord, we're talking about uh, when God brings judgment. Really, that's what it means. Either to a people or to nations, but ultimately the, (coughs) the day of the Lord is the day when Christ returns to judge all people who have rejected him. And it's partly fulfilled in that the Edomites were destroyed, but it's not yet fulfilled in that Christ hasn't returned and there are still people rejecting God. And it says in verse 15 that the day of the Lord is near for all nations. And it's for everybody, not just Edom. And in various ways, this is happening. We, that, you know, nations have risen and fallen over history, haven't they? According to the sovereign will of God. Verses 2 to 9 describe specifically Edom. But there is a day for all nations, for all people, when God will judge them if they have rejected him. And it says it will be a time of retribution. It says, as you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your own head. As Edom deserted and spoiled Israel, so they will be deserted and spoiled by God. And verse 16 describes the day of the Lord further. 
Just as you drank on my holy hill, so all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and drink and be as if they have never been. Uh, Just as you drank on my holy hill, by the way, is uh, literally about drinking alcohol on the place of the temple. And when Jerusalem was attacked and the people taken captive, the Edomites held a drunken party in the streets of Jerusalem. And they indulged in lewdness and they profaned the holy temple with idolatrous festivities. So they literally drank and got drunk and had a party on God's holy hill. Just as they drank in a a literal way, all nations will drink continually. And obviously that's not talking about alcohol there, it's talking about God's judgment in a metaphor. God often uses the, the word drinking in order to describe his judgment. If you remember when Jesus was in the garden, he said about the cup, that's the cup of God's judgment, we drink of God's wrath. And Jesus drank of that for us, didn't he? Just as they drank, all nations will drink continually. They will drink and drink and be as if they had never been. They drink of God's judgment and it will be as though they had never been. Totally destroyed, those who reject God. And as we look around the nations, including our own, it can seem sometimes as if uh, the world is winning, doesn't it? As if God's people are, uh, are being put down. As if God's people are on the losing side. But Obadiah tells us the day of the Lord is drawing near, and it is drawing near. God will have his day of judgment. And Obadiah is a warning in this way, not just to Edom, but to all nations. And to you, there is a warning. It's like a big, a, a big like, road sign that's telling you, you know, that, that, that there's a cliff and, and you're heading towards it. You need to stop, because if you don't stop, you're going over the edge. And Obadiah is telling us this, if you do not turn to God... If you proudly reject him, there is a day of destruction for those that are proud. And if you are not a follower of Jesus Christ today, this day of wrath, this destruction, this drinking continually of God's wrath is going to happen to you. This is God's word. This will happen to you. But, wonderfully... There is a day of deliverance for God's people. Look at verse 17. It begins with the word, but. Now, it's a small word, but in the Bible, the word, but, is always, almost always a wonderful word. You know, in Ephesians chapter 2, when we read how we are dead in our trespasses and sins and all those things, then we read, but God. But God, who is rich in mercy. We read about God's salvation. God intervenes. And here we have a but God. It says, but On Mount Zion, there will be deliverance. It will be holy and Jacob will possess its inheritance. Mount Zion here refers to the city of God where God dwells. And from God, from where God is, there will be a holy deliverance. Mount Zion was where the temple was and God's presence was in the holy of holies. And now in these days, his people are his temple and we are made holy as God's people by our deliverance from sin and death, by the death of Christ on our behalf. You see, what that means is that God, in his mercy, makes us holy by placing our sin on Jesus. There is a holy deliverance. Jesus takes our sin, he puts it on himself and gives us his righteousness. 
And when he does that, when we ask him for forgiveness of our sin, we submit to him, we humbly come before him and say, Lord, I am a sinner. You are a holy God. I need you. I rely on you. I know that you have died for me. I know that you are risen. I know that there is eternal life. When we, when we give our lives to God in that way, there is deliverance and we are made holy. It is a holy deliverance. And with this deliverance, it says, the children of God, Jacob, shall possess its inheritance. Well, what is the inheritance? Well, in part for the people of God here in this time who were exiles, they would eventually go back to the land that God has promised. But what about us? What is our inheritance? Well, there's a, a, an old a set of commentaries I've got uh, called the Pulpit Commentary, which is my favourite set. And it's got loads of sermons by various authors. And this is what one of those uh, preachers says about our, our inheritance. It is a righteousness which is divine, a peace which surpasses understanding, a joy which is unspeakable, a love which passes knowledge, a kingdom which cannot be moved, a crown of glory that never fades away. Oh, the unspeakable riches that are found in Christ. We are made right with God. We have peace. We have joy. We have a love from God and for each other. We have a kingdom that is everlasting. We have a hope, a home in heaven, which shall never fade or perish or spoil, which is ours forever. What a deliverance we have in Christ. There is a day of deliverance for those who are God's. For those who humbly submit to God, there is deliverance. You do not have to be destroyed. The first part of Obadiah is bad news. But there is a day of deliverance for those that submit to God. It's good news, and it's a wonderful deliverance. And in verse 18, it tells us more about the destruction of Esau, of Edom. Jacob will be a fire and Joseph a flame. Esau will be stubble, and they will set him on fire and destroy him. There will be no survivors from Esau, the Lord has spoken. And God, what God is doing here, he's saying how, um, how he's comparing the destruction of Edom with how great the deliverance is that we have from God. Okay, so Edom here will be destroyed, and it says by fire. And the house of Jacob was the southern kingdom, Judah, the house of Joseph, the northern kingdom, Israel, and they shall be together, and they shall cause the house of Esau to be completely destroyed. And in part, this was fulfilled um, in the intertestamental period. It's the time between the end of the old and the beginning of the new because there was a, an autonomous Jewish state set up. And they, were, they forcibly converted the Edomites to Judaism. Basically, there was a mass circumcision. And in AD 70, much, uh, after much conflict, the Romans sacked Jerusalem and destroyed the place and most of the Jews that were there. And this would have included those Edomites forcibly converted to Judaism. United Israel destroying Edom. And Edom was wiped out forever. You can't find anybody in the world today that can claim they are an Edomite. They are wiped out. But ultimately, we are, as the church, are the ones that are God's people now. And everybody who's not part of God's family will be destroyed. And how ironic that they were destroyed, they were defending when they were destroyed the very city that they helped destroy all those years before. Your reprisal shall return on your own head. 
And then Obadiah has this vision in verses 19 to 20 of a land being occupied. And I'm not going to read all of the verses there, um, but all of the places. But basically, just to say that this land has never fully been possessed by Israel, even during the heights of King Solomon's reign. In fact, this land spills over into foreign territory. And what we see here is the spread of the gospel. In having a vision of this land, Obadiah sees liberty and peace for God's people at a time when they were in captivity. He sees an increase in the possessions after he sees... Um, after they they had been taken away. He sees unity among the people of God after division in their kingdom. He sees the gospel. Liberty and peace from God spilling over to all nations to form a united body of God's people fit for everlasting glory. And we as the church are the inheritors, inheritors of this wonderful promise. There is a day of deliverance for God's people. And we are told in verse 21, in the last verse, that deliverers will go up on Mount Zion to govern the mountains of Esau, and the kingdom will be the Lord's. Now, who are these deliverers? Well, these deliverers are believers. They are you and I as Christians. Matthew 19:28 says this, Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will sit on the twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. See, the the disciples were promised that they would judge the twelve tribes of Israel. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 2 we read, Do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? So all of us as Christians will judge the world. Well, how do we do that? Well, we do that through our preaching of the gospel. And Matthew Henry says that the same that come as deliverers on Mount Zion shall judge the mountains of Esau, because the word of the gospel in their mouth that saves judges as well. And right now, we are the deliverers on Mount Zion. What that means is that the gospel is in our hands. We are the ones that share this deliverance. There is a deliverance for, God's, for those that don't reject God, for those that humbly accept God, and we are the ones as his people that deliver the message. It's like if I've got um, like the cure for cancer in a bottle, I'd be very rich, but if I had it in a bottle, I could take it all over the world, couldn't I? And people would, would, would be taking this and saying, yes, we want this, this cure, we want this cure for cancer. I would be the deliverer, but I wouldn't be the one that saves. It would be the medicine that saves. I think in the New King James, it uses the word saviors on Mount Zion, not saviour. Christ is the saviour. I am the one that delivers the message. And brothers and sisters, we have more than the cure for cancer here, don't we? We have the gospel of Jesus Christ that delivers from sin and death and hell. And we are the deliverers on Mount Zion. We are the ones that God has given it to, to go and take it to the world that needs to hear it. And we have such a glorious deliverance, don't we? We have such a wonderful inheritance. There is a great day of deliverance. But we need to make sure that we are the deliverers on Mount Zion that are giving that out to those that are hearing it. That is why I said at the beginning, what is your resolution this year? It should be 
that with more urgency and more fervency we share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because that is the responsibility God has given us. And as we see from this book, that message is urgent. That message is urgent. I hope that you are encouraged by the wonderful day of deliverance that we have in Christ. We have such wonderful, wonderful uh, truths in the gospel, don't we? We have a wonderful inheritance. We have a wonderful salvation. We have a secure and firm and wonderful hope that will never disappear. We can never be taken out of Christ's hands. We are always his forever. But at the same time, we need to be taking that wonderful gift and sharing it with others. And perhaps some of you here this morning have heard this message and are thinking, I'm one of the proud. I'm one of the ones that are rejecting God. I don't want anything to do with God. There is a day of destruction for you. But there can be a day of deliverance if you give your life to Jesus Christ and submit to him. And our final song, before we come around the Lord's table and remember how he delivered us, uh, tells us that there is a way back to God from the dark paths of sin. And that is if we come as a sinner to Jesus. So before we come to the Lord's table, let us stand and let us sing uh, this chorus and remember that we can come to Jesus and be delivered from our sin. Let's stand together and sing.